Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It is my great privilege to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week, Eric Schwitzgabel. He is a professor of philosophy at the University of California at Riverside. We are going to be speaking about a recent article he wrote called Cheeseburger Ethics. Eric Schwitzgabel, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Ah, yeah, thanks for having me. Are professional ethicists good people? This seems to be what you were looking into, and your answer was was not really. I guess we should start with, what is a professional ethicist? A professional ethicist is, in my definition, a professor of philosophy who specializes in teaching or researching ethics. And you found, I understand, at least in your anecdotal experience, similar conclusions with clergy to what you found with professional ethicists. That's right. I don't know of any systematic study of the behavior of clergy, but just based on in casual interviews with a number of clergy that I've come across, they seem to have pretty similar about clergy, that clergy don't behave on average better than lay people. And so how did you go about investigating how good a person an ethics professor is? Well, it's, it's tough because nobody agrees really about the kinds of ethical behaviors that you would see in this group of people, right? So everyone agrees that, you know, murdering people for fun is bad, but that doesn't happen very often among uh, professors, so you can't really study it. Thank goodness. <laughs> yeah. So, um... So you have to have to look at behaviors that are relatively more common, and thus that there might be legitimate disagreement about the ethics of. Most of this is collaboratively with Josh Rust, who's a professor of philosophy at Stetson University. And uh, what we did was we looked at a wide range of behaviors, most of which we thought, and in fact, in most cases, have confirmation that most people would think are ethically good or ethically bad. And then we looked at whether professors of ethics were more likely to engage in those behaviors than uh, other comparison groups of professors. We chose comparison groups of other professors because we wanted people who would be otherwise similar in um, educational background and uh, economic status and that sort of thing. Oh, so if all professors are generally really good or really bad people, you're not you're not controlling for that. You're just comparing That's types right. of professors. Um, and and what can you can you list all or at least some of the the behaviors that you looked at? Sure. Well, we looked at 17 or 18, depending on how you count, so I won't list them all, but we looked at the rate at which ethics books are missing from academic libraries. We looked at whether they uh, did the what most people think is the civic duty of voting in public elections based on voting records. We looked at whether they responded to emails that were designed to look as though they had been sent by undergraduates. We looked at the rate at which they littered at uh, professional meetings. We looked at self-reported rates of charitable donation and meat eating and whether they're blood donors, whether they call their mothers. We looked at, so that's just some of them. We also looked, you know, a lot of that stuff might seem kind of trivial to people and a lot of it is, I think, pretty minor. But one thing we did look at also uh, that's much less trivial is we looked at uh, involvement with Nazism in 1930s Germany at Professor Paul. And what did you find? You found that ethics professors were no better than anybody else, any any other professors. Right. Pretty much across the board. There are some nuances and fluctuations in this, but pretty much across the board, you found that ethicists behaved the same as other professors. 
why don't you explain where the the idea of cheeseburger ethics comes from here? Because that you you ran into some some excuses and justifications when you asked ethics professors uh, uh, about this uh, lack of uh, of superior ethics. Right. Well, one of the most striking results is our vegetarianism results. So we sent a questionnaire to professors in five U.S. states, and among the things we asked in this questionnaire were a variety of questions about their moral attitudes on various issues and a variety of questions about us where we asked them to self-report their behavior. Now, one of the questions that we asked about where we got a pretty striking divergence of uh, results on the opinion side was vegetarianism. We had this question we asked people to rate, our respondents to rate on a nine-point scale from very morally bad through morally neutral to very morally good, rate the following behavior, regularly eating the meat of mammals such as beef or pork. And there we found 60% of the ethics professors rated it somewhere on the morally bad side of the scale, whereas only, I think it was 19% of the professors outside of philosophy rated it as bad. And the uh, non-ethicist philosophers we're in the middle, there are 45%. And then what about behavior? (laughs) Right, and then in the later part of the survey, we asked, did you eat the meat of a mammal at your last evening meal, not including snacks? And there we did not find any statistically detectable difference in response. So it looked like ethicists are much more likely to say that it's bad, at least a little bad, regularly to eat the meat of mammals, but they don't seem to be less likely to avoid eating the meat of mammals than are other professors. And, and you found the same sort of divergence between opinion and action when it came to donating to charity, is that right? Yes, we did find that with donating to charity. So, um, so if you compare the ethicists and the non-philosophers, uh, the ethicists had much more stringent views about donating to charity. We asked them about what percentage the typical professor, what percentage of income should the typical professor donate to charity. And ethicists, I think, I, I think they said something like, 7% uh, average, and the non-philosophers said something lower, maybe 5%. But then we asked, what percentage did you personally donate to charity in the last calendar year? And those two groups reported having donated the same amount. So more stringent, and in general, we found in this survey that the ethicists were much less likely than other groups to rate things as morally neutral. They tended to think of things as being good bad, had more stringent moral views. We didn't see that showing up in their behavior. And so you describe a sort of, I take it to be a fictionalized uh, composite image of a, of an of a sort of hypocritical ethics professor uh, who speaks against eating meat and then goes and has a cheeseburger, uh, coming right. up with the, with this idea of cheeseburger ethics. And what and and you put words into this person's mouth that I take it are a composite of the sort of excuses people were giving you. What is what is the excuse when you say to that professor, you just preached against eating meat, and here you are eating meat. <laughs> All right, so. Let me um, let me just put one little asterisk on what you said. Sure. I wouldn't use the word hypocritical <laughs> um, because it's not clear to me that this would quite qualify as hypocrisy. Although you know some people might read it that way. So. Well, they have a, they have an argument that it isn't. <laughs> what what is that argument? They have an argument that it isn't. Right. But I so one of the reasons I came up with this particular thought experiment was that some people react to my work by saying, well, you know, why would you think ethicists behave any better than anyone else? Right? Isn't it kind of obvious that theory is one thing and behavior is another, and ethicists are good at the one and, you know, not so good at the other, no kind of yawn, no big surprise, this is all boring. And I think that is a kind of legitimate reaction to have, but to bring out the 
the other side of it, uh, I think it's nice to have this kind of thought experiment to kind of problematize that reaction, right? And that is, you know, you have this ethicist who teaches and says she sincerely endorses, maybe does really sincerely endorse uh, vegetarianism, and then goes to the cafeteria and has a cheeseburger right after, and her student comes up and says, hey, what's going on? And she says, basically, well, you know, theory is one thing. You're paying me to be a good theorist, and I'll discover the moral truth, and the moral truth is that you should not eat cheeseburgers, uh, but you're not paying me to be a moral exemplar. I don't aim to be uh, morally better than anyone else. That's not part of my job. So, you know, everybody else is enjoying cheeseburgers. I know it's wrong, but I'm going to do it too. And in fact, if you held me to standards uh, that were higher than other people's standards just because I was an ethicist, that would be um, putting a certain kind of pressure on my ethical theorizing, right? If you expect me to live according to how I preach, then I'm going to be motivated to come to conclusions that are self-serving. If, if no one expects me to live as I preach, then I can be completely neutral, and uh, my reflections can be guided only by an interest in discovering what's really right, really wrong. So that's, kind of, that's her response to the student. <laughs> so the supreme value seems to be money, right? If you expect me to do what I've found you should do, you got to pay me extra for it. Uh, I mean, the, it, it, not yeah. to mention the fact that there, I mean, you can make a strong case for there being that sort of uh, scaling back of the ethical conclusions anyway, as it is. Uh, I mean, there, there are, uh, I mean, ethical decisions in ethical courses and textbooks and so forth, uh, in many cases, you could argue, are scaled back to make them easier and less uh, demanding and less stringent. Uh, anyway, even though we aren't insisting that every professor live up to their conclusions. Yeah, um, I think that is true. People are more comfortable with less demanding conclusions. <laughs> um. So, you know, when uh, as far as I, the money issue, I think, is a vivid way of bringing out really what I think is maybe better conceptualized as a fairness issue. Right. So, um, is it fair to hold people to higher standards because they chose a certain profession? Mm-hmm. Especially that profession might have ethical advantages to having people joining it. Right. A kind of comparison case here might be, say, an emergency room doctor. Right. So it's good, probably, presumably, for some people to become emergency room doctors. Right. And yet, suppose that an emergency room doctor wants to go on a vacation. Right. Maybe. There aren't enough alternative staff who are good enough, and the person knows if she goes on vacation that maybe one or two people will die who might not otherwise have died. Right. Now do you say, well, it's wrong for you to go on vacation. Now you hold, because this person made a certain choice of profession, now you're holding this person to a certain kind of standard that in a way is unfair to them. <laughs> on the other hand, it does seem weird for the emergency room doctor to value a vacation over someone's life. So it's not straightforward. Yeah. I mean, and it's more complicated than that because the sort of things you were judging by, whether you call your mom and so forth, um, I mean, do you go and do the emergency room surgery uh, or do you spend the time calling your mom and spending time with with your family? I I mean, when I leave my family alone to go on a a speaking (laughs) tour to speak against the evils of war and militarism, I I consider that I'm doing that for the greater good, right? But, you know, by the standard of do I spend enough time with my family, I'm actually becoming uh, less moral, right? Right. Um, yeah, so there are always these kinds of trade-offs. Um, and in general, I think um, it's pretty difficult to... Well, I think there are 
definitely difficult issues here. I don't. I, I'm. I'm hesitant to hold people uh, to call people hypocrites or hold them to higher standards uh, just because they have high standards, right? So if someone says, "Look, I think you should donate all of your money to charity uh, other than the basic survival needs," and then they don't. Maybe they donate a lot, but they don't donate that much. Versus someone who says, nah, you don't need to donate to charity and then donate none. Right? I kind of admire the person with really high standards who doesn't quite meet them a little more than I admire the person with low standards who does success. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's, that's arguably a very fair position that, that, your, that your article brings out. I, um, I, I, I wonder about the, this idea of professionalism in teaching philosophy, though, because uh, a, a strong case could be made that students are going to learn more from uh, teaching by example, by from seeing what you do, than from uh, hearing what you preach. Um, and so, yeah. it, you know, are you a better teacher uh, it, it, by preaching something good and then, you know, in the cheeseburger case, blatantly uh, modeling the opposite? Uh, right. Or would you be actually professionally a better teacher uh, if you modeled good behavior? Uh, right. You, you know, even, even moderately better behavior. It's much more personally expensive to model good behavior, expensive in the broad sense of, you know, taking time and resources and energy and maybe also money. Right. Is, is that so it's true? It's easier to preach. <laughs> is, is that true, though? I, I mean, you, you at one point suggest, you know, from your own point of view that you don't necessarily want to be as good as you possibly could be that you that 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 somehow there would be resentment in you over that as if being good is is unpleasant is that is that necessarily the case uh yeah i i guess i'm inclined to think that it would be pretty unpleasant to be as good as you could possibly be, at least for me, given my social situation and my conception of what goodness is. Um, what, what, what unpleasant things would you have to do to be a better person? Well, I think I would probably have to uh, spend a lot less time in uh, pursuits that I find pleasurable but don't advance the social good very much. Um, and I would probably have to spend much less money on luxury. I don't live a particularly luxurious lifestyle by middle-class U.S. standards, but right. you know. Uh, but I do think it would probably be better for me not to buy desserts or expensive coffee or whatever and give that money to uh, charity. So if I wanted to be, in a way, morally perfect, maybe that would involve never again eating uh, dessert. That would be pretty sad. <laughs> At least for me. I mean, there's some people who would just maybe take so much pride in that and just think that's so awesome, right, that... So it's, uh, it probably is very psychologically contingent. Well, that's what I'm thinking, is if you begin to grow your own garden and eat very healthy and, and find enjoyment in that and satisfaction in your physical health and, and exercise uh, more and so forth, uh, can you not have a different uh, life that uh, is morally better, but uh, doesn't actually create uh, resentment uh, of the people who are finding their life satisfactions in chocolate cake. <laughs> I think that would be a great solution, right? To the extent, I think it's it's really hard to aim for to be the ideal. 
right? The perfect saint who does everything morally ideally all the time. Right? But if you can um, aim to improve yourself morally in a serious way um, and also do so in a way that makes you simultaneously kind of happier, right? That's kind of a win-win situation. So that is something that I think uh, we should straightforwardly be striving for. Yeah. Um, I, I was curious, it did, I don't know if you listed all the things in the article that you asked, um, but as far as I could tell, you didn't ask these professors if they were doing any sort of political activism, if they were active against war or prisons or environmental destruction, if they were engaged in any sort of large-scale uh, efforts of that sort. Did, did, did that sort of question come in, or was it left out intentionally? So I haven't uh, asked, Josh, uh, Josh Rust and I have not asked about political activism in particular, not because we're not curious about it, but just because there are so many different potential questions we could have asked. Uh, and that one can get complicated because it's not as obvious necessarily whether it's good to be politically active per se versus being politically active in the right sorts of causes, but then what are the right sorts of causes? So it's complicated, right? Yeah, I suppose. I just see the biggest moral failing of our species as a lack of activism, and I see it as a moral responsibility to, uh, to, to, to get out there and try to put an end to the very worst things like war and the destruction of the climate and the oceans and so forth. Um, I, right. I guess that, that's too uh, controversial, perhaps. Well, I do think it's important. Uh, we don't avoid controversial things. Vegetarianism is obviously a controversial one. <laughs> yeah. But um, I do think that, I mean, one other reason, so yeah, that would be interesting to ask. Uh, so in a way, I kind of regret I haven't asked it. It would be interesting to know the answer on that. But um, one just caveat I would put on that is that the history of philosophers' involvement in political activism is mixed. Right, so uh, Heidegger <laughs> was politically active. Sure. Uh, right, so in Nazi Germany, philosophers were not particularly prone to be on the liberal side. There were some who were uh, opposed to Nazism and some who were in favor of Nazism. Overall, it looks like approximately an even split or even maybe a tendency in favor of the more right-wing uh, Nazi positions there. So... Uh, you know, and yeah, I guess I didn't like I, I, Robespierre and the kind of more violent side of uh, communism. Sometimes they have, you know, kind of philosophical rationales. So it's a it's a tricky issue. Uh, yeah, I guess I meant specifically for things that uh, I, however idiosyncratically, see as as moral demands: uh, peace, uh, right. lack of. Uh, mass incarceration, uh, environmentally sustainable practices rather than destruction of the earth. Uh, I didn't mean right. active in any which way. <laughs> right. So then uh, a question that targeted that would have to choose a particular position and say, have you been active in such and such? Right. Yeah. So, yeah, we haven't done that. That would be interesting to know. My guess is that uh, philosophers tend to be on the politically liberal side in the United States in the 21st century. In fact, we have evidence of that. Uh, we have uh, voting participation data 
and in some of the states, the political party affiliation of the voters is public unless they are declined a state. And uh, in our database, I think the split, if you exclude 30 third parties and declined a state, the split among philosophers was something like 93 to 7 Democrat uh, percent Democrat to Republican. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, Is that right. all philosophy professors or just ethics in particular? Uh, no, I think that was philosophers in general. I have to, I'd have to confirm the numbers on that to be sure, but it's, 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 I, I think those are the exact numbers. Or anyway, it's yeah. close. It's a very extreme split. Um, so, right. But, but interestingly, you know, it's not the case overall historically that professors and philosophers tend to skew toward the political left. Right. So in Germany. In the 1920s and 1930s, the professoriate in general tended to skew to the political right. Yeah, and uh, we're paid to do so. Uh, you know, I, I used to know a philosophy professor here in Virginia named Richard Rorty who would argue that, that Heidegger's Nazism was just not relevant to his professional uh, work in philosophy. And uh, I, I could never quite agree or, or grasp it. It, it seemed to me that if it wasn't relevant, then uh, philosophy wasn't relevant, and why do philosophy? <laughs> so, I mean, what, what's, your, yeah. what's your take? I think it's relevant. I mean, there is a definitely a legitimate debate about that in Heidegger scholarship in particular. But when I read... Heidegger, and when I read most philosophers, it seems to me that their political views and their philosophical and moral views are all tangled inextricably up with each other. I mean, Heidegger's pride in Germany and in the German philosophical tradition and in the Greek philosophical tradition that he saw, the German philosophical tradition as arising out of, has a kind of nationalistic, to me, a kind of nationalistic feel that also the German political right has. And, and so, anti-democratic and arrogant and superior. Yeah. Uh, yes, <laughs> I agree with all that, too. There's a kind of elitism in there. Uh, yeah. Yeah. The... Uh, the other excuse that I uh, I wanted to to mention that you you had in your article that some of these professors uh, came up with I, I'm I'm using these pejorative terms like excuse that that maybe you weren't using but uh, there was the remark that well we just deal in bizarre ethical puzzles that don't have any real uh, relevance to to actual life <laughs> and, and then again I I want to ask well then why do them uh, and follow-up question uh when they when they get heard about such as you know the uh, the famous ticking time bomb that justifies torture well then they have a bad impact uh they have an impact and it's a bad one on actual life when people uh imagine that they might be real right so i think that ethics can have attraction as a purely uh, intellectual set of puzzles that's disconnected from real life. Uh, if you think about really abstract, remote <laughs> cases, but I think you're right that um, even those cases, once you kind of chase down the implications, they end up maybe not being so removed from real choices as as people who want to keep them abstract might think. I also think that even if someone's professional focus tends to be on pretty abstract cases, in teaching, right, most ethicists 
teach at least some philosophers like Aristotle or Kant or Peter Singer or John Stuart Mill who are talking about things that have direct practical relevance for people. So at least in their teaching capacity and in order to really engage students, right, yeah. you kind of have to bring it to real life. So, um, yeah, so that kind of excuse or justification uh, doesn't move me much, yeah. And, and, and why... Uh... I mean, it it almost seems like uh, uh, stripping their career of justification. I mean, if you're going to 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 define what you do as completely useless and irrelevant, why do <laughs> why do it? You know, <laughs> why be yeah. why be engaged in that profession? Well, I would I slightly hesitant to draw that conclusion because there's a lot of philosophy that seems irrelevant uh, in the way the most abstract corners of ethics can be. Right. So if you're talking about the most abstract kind of metaphysics or really far out corners of logic or mathematics or something like that, you know, someone say, might say, well, what are the, what's the practical application of this? You might not have a good answer, right? There's a kind of Yeah, but I was talking about ethics, not mathematics. <laughs> well, I, okay, so I, I just want to be hesitant about the conclusion, because I think there is a kind of uh, intellectual beauty in pursuing these things for their own sake that can also transfer over into ethics and be part of the justification of doing ethics, even if it's not the primary justification or the most important justification. Yeah, okay. But you're still not buying that, uh, that 100% of, uh, of what any ethics professor does is, is of that abstract quality. Right. Um, we, uh, we, we have just a, a couple of minutes left, and I, I think one of, the, one of the key points that you made toward the end of your article um, was, and we, and we touched on this, that most people seem to just aim for mediocrity. That, that's their goal. They, they are yeah. trying to be great um, in, in terms of moral behavior. Is that, is that true, and is that as bad as it sounds? <laughs> I'm inclined to think that it's true, although I think that the empirical evidence on this is still evolving. Um, I'm not sure it's as bad as it sounds, though. I think when you see people cheating, right, so let's say there's a rule against parking your bike in a certain location, right, and you see lots of people doing it, you're kind of like, hey, I don't want to follow that rule if no one else is doing it, right? right? And it might still be wrong in some sense to park your bike there, it might not be ideal to do that, right? But, mm, you know, we don't, you're not aiming to be necessarily a saint about parking your bike, right? If you see people, I think normal people, right, if they see people not paying the tax that you're supposed to pay on, before Amazon started taxing internet purchases, right, you're supposed to report your purchases to the IRS or to the in California to the state, right, and then pay tax based on that. Two percent of people complied with that rule, right? If you don't see people complying with a moral rule, then you kind of don't want to follow it. If you learn that a lot of people in a class are cheating, then you feel kind of bad if you're the sucker who's not cheating. I think that's a pretty common part of human psychology. People aren't really trying to be better than right. anyone else. Well, uh, common and not universal, thank goodness. Uh, and, <laughs> not universal. And maybe we, maybe we need professors of <laughs> careful uh, exceptionalism or something of the sort. Um, right. so can I just add the other caveat on that is, if you get very invested in seeing yourself as not like that, right, so that you have to see yourself as always being way better than everyone else around you, 
then I think there's a risk there, too, right, that you will be highly motivated to rationalize and always find excuses, and that's not good either. Oh, I think being good means means trying to make everybody else better, too, not trying to be better than them. In any case, we could go on for hours, incredibly stimulating uh, article and, and work. Eric Schwitzgabel is a professor of philosophy at the University of California, Riverside, and we've been discussing his article, Cheeseburger Ethics. Eric, thanks for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Thanks for having me on. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.